This podcast is distributed for informational purposes, and listeners should refer to important disclosures in the blog and the website for more information. Welcome to the Wealthcast, where host Charles Bowinski and his guests share their global expertise and the most current information for your financial planning needs. Each inspiring interview will help you to maximize your financial stability and growth so you can have more time doing the things you love. And now, here's Charles. Hello and welcome to the Wealthcast. I'm your host, Charles Bowinski. On this podcast, we bring you the information that you need to know in order to be a good steward of your wealth, reach your goals, and improve society. Today's episode is all about taxes with Rosalind Such of Drucker and Scacchetti. Rosalind is a graduate of LaSalle University and Villanova University's Master's in Taxation program. Rosalind and I are going to discuss the potential impact of tax law changes that are afoot and how you should consider preparing for year-end tax planning with your accountant. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Roz, and welcome to the Wealthcast. Chaz, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so today we're going to talk about taxes, everybody's favorite subject. I know it's yours. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, maybe review the proposed changes in the tax law that may be coming down the pike. There may not be much to do sort of in anticipation of those changes because they're, they're just proposed at this point. But I thought it would, might also be helpful to talk about what we should be doing in any given tax year as we approach year end strategies, tactics, just bookkeeping, best practices, et cetera, for both clients and advisors. Okay. So why don't we start out with the proposed changes for 2021? So the Biden plan has been released and it was released before really the the election and refined over time. And then we got the green book that came out a couple months ago. And that kind of gave us a little bit more insights into what to expect should this legislation go through. And of course, legislation takes time to and gets curated, if you will, uh, as everyone takes a, a little snippet of what they want. And so it's hard to plan for legislation that's not even proposed yet. We, we don't even have a proposed bill. We just have theories and then the green book that kind of um, describes what to expect as far as for budgetary purposes. So the one change that everybody is most focused on is the increase in tax rates. Mm -hmm. So the proposal would increase the 37% top rate to the 39.6% bracket, which, which existed prior to TCJA which was the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. So I think that the jump in the top rate, obviously, is it's just under 3%. While it can be meaningful, especially for a high-income taxpayer, what's more on people's mind is the jump in a long-term capital gains rate that is proposed. So that would apply to long-term capital gains and qualified dividends that right now have preferential rate. Those rates right now are 20% plus a 3.8% kicker, if you will, on the net investment income tax. And the proposal is that those rates would stop being preferential and they would go to the ordinary income rates. So for our top earning taxpayers, those in the top bracket, that would mean if the top bracket jumps to 39.6%, they'd go from what is 
20% to 39.6% on those capital gains and, and qualified dividends, which is a substantial tax increase. That's supposed to be for taxpayers with adjusted gross income over $1 million. Mm-hmm. And right now, the way that it read in the green book is that that would be retroactive to the date of the announcement in 2021, meaning we don't know for sure, but that could mean the budget transmittal date, which was May 28th of 2021, or the date the American Families Plan was released, which was April 28th of 2021. Unfortunately, what that does is take away our ability to plan for it. So if we thought this was going to be effective one one twenty two, we might take some steps to uh, recognize gains that would, you know, if we thought we were going to recognize them in 22, we'd want to expedite the recognition or realization of those gains. A lot of folks that are looking at mergers and acquisitions, possibly selling their businesses, it might be too late now to try and you know make that sale occur before year end. But then again, we don't know what's really going to happen. It might wind up being effective one one twenty twenty two. That's kind of like the best case scenario. So there is. It's not that there's not planning. It's it's more like. What do you think might happen? <laughs> right, right. And rolling the dice a little bit. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, one thing that seems to me, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the one strategy may become more valuable, and that is loss harvesting. If rates go significantly higher, then those carry forward losses and losses that you might realize this year are, became that much more valuable. Is that not correct? Well, <laughs> depends. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it, it seems in theory that that would be correct, but there could be something that says in the new law that hasn't been written mm-hmm. uh, that says that carry forward losses are still go- only going to avail you to a 20% mm-hmm. benefit. You know, we can assume that it'll be off it'll offset gains and and at the higher rate. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. But in theory, yes, I do think that, you know, harvesting losses which is a, a year in strategy, well really a year-round strategy you know, while you're rebalancing a portfolio will still be valuable. And, and on a definitely on a going forward basis, I shouldn't say definitely, because again, it's not written, but it would seem on a going forward basis, it certainly would benefit us at the higher rate. And hopefully the carry forward, I, I, I do have some clients with some substantial capital loss carry forwards, uh, things that occurred in, in the 2008 collapse of, of the market. So, you know, there still might be, that might be very valuable. That might suddenly become a very valuable tax asset that wasn't as valuable before. Is there anything else sort of in theory that may become really something investors should focus on from a tax standpoint? Well, I can just say that there's things that we could dream about, right? Mm-hmm. So the $3,000 limit for capital losses uh, to be deductible against ordinary income it made sense, right? Because when capital gains had a preferential treatment, then you know you want to put some kind of stopgap on the losses. Well, now if capital gains no longer have this preferential treatment, why couldn't we take those losses, all of them? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know that that's going to change, and it's nowhere in the proposals. But just like you know, I like to think about taxes a lot. Right. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> but it was you know, in theory, it seems like you should there should no longer be a limit on tax you know, capital losses that we're allowed to take. It's hard because we just don't know. Yes. We don't know what, what could come. There's also some interesting things in the proposed changes, uh, such as the elimination of 1031 exchanges. Mm-hmm. And that was, there was no date specific, like an effective date for that. So I would say that taxpayers that are considering a 1031 exchange, I would definitely try and get that done before year end. So why don't we explain in layman's terms what a 1031 exchange is? 
a 1031 exchange allows you basically to defer the gain that you might recognize upon the sale of real property. So if you have a, a rental property that you've been caring for quite some time and you want to sell it, but you want to buy a new rental property to replace it, maybe the market where, where you're renting isn't doing so great and you want to get into a better market, then you can basically defer that gain. You know, There's a lot of rules, so this is overly simplifying <laughs> it, but you can defer that gain and basically roll the gain and embed it into the new property so that you wouldn't recognize the gain or realize the gain until you sell the replacement property. Gotcha. Let's talk just for a moment about the potential corporate tax rate changes, right? There's there's proposed or or thoughts about increasing that from what twenty one to twenty eight percent. Is that still Correct. on the table? Well, everything's on the table right now. Right. Yep. Right. It's wide, <laughs> everything's it's on wide the open. Right. They're also uh, proposing a minimum fifteen percent tax on corporate book income for large companies, but no one knows really what that means. Uh, right. It's, it's, <laughs> including uh, me, to be honest. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. There's a raise in corporate global intangible income tax uh, from 10.5 to 21%, basically uh, doing away with the guilty tax rates. Um, don't want to get in the weeds here with kind of more complex tax things. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of increase in tax rates that are proposed. And just to go back real quick to the long-term capital gains rate, discussion, when we talked about the net investment income tax, which is a surtax of 3.8%, we're told that that's still going to be in place with regard to capital gains and qualified dividends. So not only would the rate go from 20% to 39.6%, but that 3.8% tax would still apply. Mm -hmm. So now capital gains would actually not only, it wouldn't have a preferential rate, it would actually have a higher rate than your normal earned income, which is interesting. But the proposal does expand that 3.8% surtax to households making more than $400,000. Right now, the the limit is 250 before that kicks in. Mm -hmm. So if the capital gains tax rate goes as high as you just indicated, it may make charitable contributions in kind in securities much more valuable. Has there been any talk about changing charitable deductions or anything like that? Not that I recall. There are no changes there, but certainly we have a lot of tools in our toolbox for charitable giving. Mm -hmm. There's a couple examples I'd want to discuss, but first maybe let's talk about the nuts and bolts of what a donor advised fund is, because mm -hmm. I think that's such a powerful tool and it's really popular tax saving strategy that we use to maximize philanthropic impact and, and tax savings. So donor advised funds, also known as DAFs, they allow philanthropic taxpayers to give strategically. Basically, you contribute appreciated securities, though you can contribute cash, it just would take away the significant tax benefit of a, of a donor advised fund. And if you donate appreciated securities, this avoids paying tax on the capital gains, which obviously becomes more valuable uh, if their tax rate goes up on capital gains. And so the appreciation of the of the securities that you would normally re realize and pay tax on would go away, but you'd still get the deduction for the fair market value of what you're donating. So if you have a stock that was worth $50, but you only paid $25 for it, you put it into a donor advised fund, you get a $50 deduction, and that $25 gain disappears and you never have to pay any tax on that gain. And what, Roz, are the limitations on donor advised funds in terms of amounts that you can contribute? I'm not aware of any specific uh, limitations for donor advised funds. I think they'd be fund specific. Mm -hmm. You know, most major investment houses have their own donor advised funds. Yep. 
you know, anyone that's interested in using donor advised funds should research the ones that are available to them. Their investment advisor probably will have one that they prefer that yep. they use most often or most have vetted and, and are most familiar with. But, you know, they have different fees, different minimums. Mm -hmm. uh, so that all should be researched before a decision is made on which donor advised fund to donate to. But there are limits on charitable giving. Yes. So those limits are based on adjusted gross income. And currently it's 60% of adjusted gross income. So you may be able to make a large donation to a donor advised fund, but not get the whole deduction in the, the year of the donation. But you could also spread it out over time. You don't have to fund a donor advised fund in one year. You can keep funding it every year or over multiple years if, if that's what you prefer. If you want to be opportunistic, you know, um, a lot of advisors are reviewing client portfolios. I'm sure you do that regularly with your clients. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing rebalancing, especially after the market is, has been strong, that's a great opportunity to use those gains that you're trying to rebalance out of to contribute those funds to a donor advised fund and then basically avoid the tax on those gains while you know funding the philanthropic giving of, of the client. So for clarity for the listeners, the limitation is not on the contribution of the donor advised fund. It's just on the advantage you can take or what you can take advantage of in terms of charitable contributions in any given year. Yeah, the same that it would be on if you were making cash contributions. You yep. That limit is there regardless of how uh, you donate to charity, whether it be through securities, a donor advised fund, directly through cash. Any way you donate, there's limit. So the nature of the donor advised fund sort of requires you to think ahead if you're going to make a large contribution as to what your subsequent year's tax planning might look like. And it's another reason to get together with your accountant and think about what do the next several years look like if we're going to make a, a large donor advised fund contribution. Yeah, but I would say, Chaz, it doesn't have to be a big donation, too. Mm -hmm. I've seen as low as 10000 might maybe even 5000 for certain funds. Mm -hmm. And if I just kind of go over a simplified example of, of someone that could benefit from a donor-advised fund who maybe wouldn't ever think of using one because maybe they don't think they're, they're in that, you know, stratosphere of, of wealth. Okay. Great, great. So if you take someone who normally has... $10,000 in state and local tax deduction, which is the maximum you can deduct currently under the law, and maybe $12,000 of mortgage interest. Okay, so that's $22,000 of itemized deductions. Well, assume this is a married couple. So the standard deduction is $25,100 in 2021. So if they were to make charitable contributions up to $3,100, right? So that would be the 10, the 12, and the 3,100 would equal 25,1, which is the same exact as the standard deduction. That would mean they actually got no tax benefit for the charitable contributions that they made, that $3,100 of charitable contributions. Great that they helped whichever charity that they decided to give to, but no tax deduction for that $3,100. So now let's say that same taxpayer decides, I still want to give economically $3,100 a year, but instead of doing it $3,100 each year, mm -hmm. every five years, I'll give fifteen five, which is just simply 3,100 times five. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in that instance, they would receive a tax deduction for $12,400 of charity because in that one year, they'll far exceed the, the standard deduction of $25,100, mm -hmm. but economically, they haven't changed anything. 
And this is called bunching. So they're bunching their charitable contributions to one year as a means to take advantage of the tax deduction. So in this example, say it's a 25% tax rate couple, they would receive a tax deduction of $3,100. They basically funded one year, I didn't make the math funny on purpose, but (laughs) they, they funded one year of the five years of giving with a tax deduction that they wouldn't have received otherwise if they gave that amount every single year. Now they could do that by simply just giving 15.5 one year, mm-hmm. or they could put it in a donor advised fund, which would allow them to still dole it out each year. Cause a lot of people say, I can't not give the charity for four years. That would just break my heart. I love these charities, you know, whatever they may be, they depend on my donation each year. So a donor advised fund would allow someone who maybe, like I said, doesn't think of themselves as a really high net worth individual or a ultra high net individual. They think that donor advised funds are only for those folks. They're not, they can be used in very simple ways. Like the example that we just went over, And um, I'm going to send it to you so you can put in the show notes, the example. Awesome. Because really in that situation, it's just amazing how you can take something economically the same across the board, but the tax savings, I mean, you can literally one free year of charitable giving. Right. Or maybe they decide to give that other 3,100 to charity too. I don't know. Maybe it depends on how charitable they are, I guess. (laughs) Right. Yeah, of course. Of course. Well, that's helpful to understand. Does it, from the large donor's perspective, can you use that or someone or share an example or just a theoretical example of someone selling a business or someone uh, having a wealth event in a given year, how they might use a donor advised fund in a similar fashion? Well, it'd be it'd be a little bit different um, in that you'd be bunching, but not to take advantage of the standard deduction rate um, or mm-hmm. the t- standard deduction amount. In that instance, what you'd be doing is bunching so that you could take advantage of the fact that your tax rate is higher in that year. So in a year that you have a mergers and acquisitions event, a liquidating event where you you received a lot of proceeds, then you, you're going to be in a higher tax rate. Assumably, you'd be in the highest tax rate that year. And maybe in, in other years prior and in, in your normal everyday life up before the sale, you were in a lower bracket. So now what you can do, and, and you expect to be in a lower bracket after the year of the transaction. Now, if you fund a donor advised fund in that year where you have the higher income and the higher tax bracket, you get a deduction at that higher rate. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a more valuable deduction. And then you can use those funds that you put in a donor advised fund to fund your charity over multiple years. And you just make the grants. Most donor advised funds that make it very user friendly to be able to make those grants to any 501c3 normal public charity. That makes total sense to me. So it's just another reason why having a conversation towards year end about tax planning issues with your accountant is a good idea. Donor advised funds being one of them. I imagine in theory, in a short order, relatively short order, we'll have some clarity on on the implementation or the what's actually going to happen with the tax law. In a normal year, what do you think the best practice is for a client and their accountant slash advisor from a tax planning standpoint, what should that look like? I think regular conversations, at least semi-annually, maybe quarterly to just check in and see what's going on. You know, maybe they're thinking about doing some house renovations and they could put in, instead of doing one type of window, they could put in an energy efficient window that would garner them an, an energy credit. But even sometimes the simplest things, if you think of an executive who's in a higher income earning threshold, but not the 
sounds funny, but not the super <laughs> threshold. So say they're, they're under a million, but say between four hundred dollars and $900,000 of W-2 income. And say 200000 of that is a bonus. Well, that bonus is going to be withheld at 22%, meaning their federal tax withholding is going to be 22% on that bonus because that's the mandatory withholding rate currently. And that's only that if you make under a million dollars. If you make over a million dollars, it's the top rate, which would be 37%. But this presents a problem for someone who's making, say, over $600,000 because their top tax rate is they're in the 37% tax bracket, but they've now had a $200,000 bonus that was withheld at 22%. So if you run the numbers, they're about $30,000 underpaid for withholding, which, you know, assumably they got a $200,000 bonus. They have the cash available to pay it. But if they didn't provision for it and they weren't discussing it with their tax accountant and they, they didn't know, they may have already spent it. Or maybe they already gave it to their investment advisor to invest it and didn't tell them to reserve the cash. So by having those conversations early, it will allow them to kind of take a team approach so that say they, they wanted to invest those dollars, they can advise their, their investment advisor or their investment advisor can talk to their tax advisor o- offline and they can prepare and be opportunistic about how they invest the dollars. Similarly, if they have a big event that maybe creates income, but not necessarily cash, which can happen, then their investment advisor may need to liquidate some holdings in order to fund the tax bill. Well, I'm not an investment advisor, but I assume you'd prefer to be told way in advance so you can be opportunistic and look for things that you'd like to sell instead of being told the week before the bill is due, Mm -hmm. I need this much cash within a week. And now you can't be opportunistic. You just, I mean, you can do your best with what you're working with, but you can't really be thoughtful and opportunistic about which securities you liquidate to fund those tax dollars. So, you know, having those conversations throughout the year are really important. And we run tax projections for our clients regularly to make sure they understand what their tax cash flow needs are, because sometimes they're just like, people don't think about it. Some people think about it all the time. I have the spectrum of clients. Some mm-hmm. clients, it's all they think about is their taxes. And <laughs> Some clients, they, they say, that's what I pay you for, worry about my taxes, Roz. But it's really, it's a group effort. We need to be somewhere in the middle where we're both thinking about it. Yeah. It's a, you know, as in any other discipline, open communication and clear communication among interested parties and, and advisors is, is really invaluable. And I think, you know, to your point about cash flow needs from a portfolio, the more notice you have, the better, because you can raise cash in rebalancing transactions. You, you can coordinate it with other cash flow needs that they may or may not have. When you talk about tax projections, you know, as you get closer to your end, you th- is there sort of a threshold, sort of a checklist or a, a alarm that goes off that says we should do a projection for that person? What, in other words, what sort of events or circumstances really encourage or would encourage you to advise, let's do a projection for this client? Is it is it transaction-based? Is it an unusual outcome and something you weren't expecting? What do you think Maybe all of the above. Uh, okay. Certainly transaction-based. Okay. When there's, right. when we know there's a transaction, a, a large transaction, usually the sale of a business, we certainly will do tax projections um, again, and that's so that we can advise our client and their investment advisors how to provision for the cash that we're going to need to pay the tax bill uh, when it's due, whether it be for estimates or when the taxes bill due in April. The quarterly payments is another reason why we do the projections. Sometimes we do it just to figure out what's the minimum we have to pay in each quarter. Mm-hmm. Because maybe I have a client whose income is is investment-based, like almost all their income is investments. And because of that, their income is different every year. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the market did really good last year. Maybe sans a few couple weeks there. <laughs> right. Yeah. At the um, end of the day, it did well, but it was it was touch and go there for a while. Yeah. So you know, last year, a client who maybe was paying on a safe harbor based on 2019, which is just a way you can pay estimates uh, based on the prior year, they may have been underpaid because the market did so well and their investments returned so much that they had taxable income that required larger payments. So doing projections there would have been helpful. So I, I would say clients that are have income that is almost strictly investment-based, we do we do projections for them pretty regularly, quarterly, semi-annually, sometimes, you know, right before year end. Just depends on the complexity of the client, how much their business changes. Closely held businesses that have a lot of volatility and what they make. Someone who, you know, sells products and, and maybe the market dropped out from under them last year in 2020. You know, we want to make sure that we're paying in the right amount, not too much. Mm-hmm. Too right because we may have sent them a safe harbor estimate, but then they call me and they say, "I know we we decided these estimates, but wow, we're having a bad year." You know, COVID aside, like that can just happen, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Any industry can have a, a bump in the road, so it's it's really just client specific, but definitely a transaction year is when we're doing projections. I find that the executives benefit from it, like a, like an example that we just went over with under withholding for bonuses. They often are unsettled by a large tax bill. That's not fair, though, because it really is person specific. Mm -hmm. I have some clients that say, I don't want to pay estimates. I don't want to give the IRS $1 before I have to. I'm willing to pay the underpayment at estimated tax penalty, which really isn't a penalty. It's an interest Mm -hmm. payment. Right now, it's 3%. So some people think I can do better in the market. A little risky, but that is the thought process mm-hmm. for some folks. Mm-hmm. And then you have some folks that say, I don't want to pay one more dollar than I have to. So tell me the exact amount I have to pay to avoid any penalty. And then there's some people that are in the middle, like I want to pay some because I don't want to have a big balance due, but I don't want to pay it all now. Like, it just It's really up to each client's personality. Sometimes I keep notes in their files so I know <laughs> like, of, which, of course. which way that they want to go. Well, like any service profession, it's knowing your client and their needs and being able to customize the advice to that client is critical, right? I mean, yeah. it, it, it's the whole ballgame. So. I mean, I had one client once tell me uh, 3% is the penalty. Wow, that's a great, that, that's wonderful capital. You know, I, can, I can't get that from a bank at 3%. So I'd rather fund my business with that and then pay later. Yep. Uh, again, risky. Right. Risk tolerance just you know I'm sure you know better than anyone uh, in your profession is is very person specific. It is. Uh, so it's it's similar in tax. It is. Well, this has been really helpful, Roz. Um, We're going to provide some of the examples that you offered in the show notes. So if the listener wants to go and read not only the transcript of this interview and discussion, but also see some of the examples or an example or two that Roz uh, has provided, they'll be there and you can easily find them in the show notes. So thank you so much, Roz. I hope we have the opportunity to revisit this discussion or continue this discussion once uh, once we have some actual clarity on the tax law. And perhaps there's something that um, we can guide our clients to focus on as a result to take advantage of, of opportunities. But I just wanted to say thank you and I'll look forward to the next chat we have. Great. Thanks so much, Chess. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for joining Roz and I today as we discussed taxes both the potential impact of tax law changes and how you may consider planning for taxes as we approach year end. There's additional information on today's podcast on the website. 
please uh, visit the site and feel free to take advantage of those resources. Thanks again for listening, and I'll look forward to next time. Thanks for tuning in to The WealthCast. You can get all the details on this episode, our guests, and everything you need to know so you can create and enjoy the luxury of financial independence by visiting us at moderawealth.com slash thewealthcast. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you catch every episode. We'll see you next time on The WealthCast. This has been a production of Twin Flame Studios.